As you find uh, your seat, uh, find your Bible and get to 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, somewhere in a seat in front of you, you'll find a black hardcover Bible. Grab that. If you don't own a Bible, leave with that. Uh, we would love that to be our gift to you. Um, as, as you find 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, uh, he said this, and I want to read this to you. He says, although my memory's fading... I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. I love what he proclaims both in the hymn that he wrote of Amazing Grace and in this statement right here. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Today we look at three paragraphs at the beginning of the book of First Timothy, and uh, these three paragraphs really bring out this concise statement in which John Newton made here. And, and, and Paul is starting this letter to Timothy where he needs to start it with a, with a proper understanding of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. But before we get into the particulars of these three paragraphs, let me just set this passage we're going to study in a bit of the context of the, the whole book. We said last week that um, we can find the purpose statement of the book of 1 Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And it, I want to read that to you. It'll be on the screen. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes this. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And so the book of 1 Timothy is this letter to Timothy who's doing what Timothy does best of establishing and encouraging this young church in Ephesus. And Paul's providing some instruction to go, this is how the household of God is to operate. This, this is what it looks like for how the church is to behave, how it's to be structured and, and how we are to live together as a household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so we have a great gift from God in the, in the source of this book here to help us understand as Redeemer Bible Church, what does it look like for us to live out being the household of God? Now, uh, real quick, from a, from a macro level or a big picture standpoint on this series, we've called this series right from that you know, passage, the household of God. But I think it's really important that early on in the series, we stop and we define what do we mean by household? Because if we're not careful, we can hear this word household of God that Paul writes to Timothy and we can interpret a version of household through kind of our 21st century Western American understanding of household. But when Timothy heard Paul call the church a household of God, how would Timothy have understood what households look like? A couple, a couple ways I think it could, look, look, could have looked different then than it does now. Um, a, a household then was much more interconnected than it is today. Uh, you, you had um, this intergenerational reality. Often, you know, grandparents, parents, kids could all be living under one household. Uh, more so than we might find in our context here today. Uh, this led to a much more uh, interdependent spirit that happens in the household. You leaned on each other. You had to lean on each other just to make it through kind of the functions of the day. Uh, in that day, a household could also serve as a center of commerce in the community. And so you might have been a baker and you baked in the front and you lived in the back. You're a blacksmith, you 
did blacksmithy things in the front and you lived in the back. Like your, your household also was a piece of the commerce of the community. And then this is really important for us, I think, to acknowledge. Uh, in that day, it was the common understanding that the focus of the household was what is for the greater good of the household. Now, now let me kind of juxtapose that with maybe how we, we can think about household more today. And, and this isn't necessarily a critique, it's just trying to help us understand the way we think about household. We often can have a much more independent view of household today. So, so the, the, the Grahams who live at, you know, on, on State Road 144, this, this is our household. And then a half a mile down the road, that's the Powers household. And, and it's kind of this very independent understanding. And, and then we can kind of carry that in even to how we gather as a church. Right? Like we have our seat and then we hope to have a buffer seat or two before we have, you know, a, another person sitting. We, we carry this, this spirit of independence more so than we probably realize. Uh, in our day, our household, instead of being a place that is the, a center of commerce within the community, is often a place we look to to retreat from community. And so, like, we pull in, right, and we hit the garage door, and we hope to time up that garage door coming down when we're getting out of our car so we don't have to talk to any of our weird neighbors, right? And, and right, we laugh because it's maybe more true some days than we care to admit. But household for us can also often be a place we go to retreat from community rather than a place we're welcoming community into. And then, this is really important, I think often today we can view our household, one of the main purposes of our household is to raise and launch out individuals who will go start their own individual households rather than having the spirit of like, what, what's the overall good of the household? Now, I want to start there. Because if, if Paul is using this picture of a household to help us understand how the church is to behave, I think we need a much more interconnected, intergenerational, interdependent reality of what he wants this to look like than maybe we do in our more independent understanding of our culture. Thus, like what Pastor DJ just shepherded us, shepherded us into of like leaving our seats and going and meeting together, like wow, that was beautiful. And more of that, and more of that even on a larger scale. So I just wanted to start there to say, like, I, I think over this series, we just need to keep that in front of us. But as we continue in these three paragraphs we're going to look at today, we got to remember, Paul, when he started this letter, there's some false teachers that he's like, Timothy, you got to charge these guys not to teach any different doctrine. They're teaching wrong doctrine, which is leading to a wrong understanding of the gospel. And in the gospel has to serve both as the foundation of our household and the centerpiece of our household. If we get the gospel off, everything's off. And so he's like, Timothy, we gotta deal with this. And now what Paul's gonna do today, it, it's beautiful. He says, man, these people, they think they're teachers of the law, but they have no idea what they're teaching. And then, as we're gonna pick it up in verse eight of 1 Timothy chapter one, he's like, let's talk about the law of God. And he's gonna say, here's the law of God. Here's the good law of God, and here's how the good law of God is used to be used lawfully. In the next paragraph, he's going to say, now how does the gospel come to bear on everything we just unpacked in that last paragraph? And then in the last paragraph we're going to look at today, he's going to say, now Timothy, guard this. Fight for this. That's what we're going to see today. And so today is really all about this. God's law shows me I am a great sinner. God's gospel shows me he is a great savior of sinners. 
Totally adapted from John Newton's great quotation there. God's law shows me I'm a great sinner. God's gospel shows me he's a great savior of sinners. And we're going to see this in these three parts. Seen in each of these paragraphs. The lawful use of the good law of God in part one. The lawful use of the good, good law of God. And part two, the hope for breakers of God's law. Spoiler alert, that's good news for all of us. Part three, the good fight for a gospel-centered household. God help us. Uh, this is your household. This is your word. We're your people all for your glory. Speak now through your word. In the power of Jesus' name, amen. Part one, let's say it like this. The law, rightly used, shows us that we are lawbreakers. The law, rightly used, shows us that we are lawbreakers. Verse eight. Now, we know, and I, I want your help reading this. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." And so Paul had just got done saying to begin this letter, these people think they're teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. What you had in the church at Ephesus in this time, and, and as I said last week, we can't piece all of the pieces of the heresy together, but here's from what Paul's writing, it seems we can piece together. You had a group of false teachers who were literally trying to lay the law down on the church as a means of earning or attaining a righteous standing before God. And Paul's like, Timothy, we got to start there. We got to deal with that. It can't be. And Paul says, now let's talk about the law. And I want you to see what he says. Now we know that the law is, this is so important for Paul to state. Paul's opponents would always knock him that Paul didn't think the law of God was good. Now what is Paul talking about when he's bringing up the law? He's talking about the law as it pertains, as we have it in the Old Testament. Now, it, we, again, we don't know for sure if there were different elements of the, uh, the, 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 the Jewish law that these false teachers were emphasizing for righteousness, but the law in general, as we have it in our Old Testament, God's law, can be understood best in three parts, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. Uh, so when you think about God's moral law, think of one of the Ten Commandments, that, uh, you shall not murder. That, that's a moral right and wrong in which God has laid down to, to govern a group of people so they would live set apart for his glory. As you think about the ceremonial laws that you come to when you read the Old Testament, things like laws of cleanliness or laws of feasting and festivals, these are ceremonial realities that God laid down to govern the people of how, how they were to approach each other or approach the Lord. And then as you read through the Old Testament, you come across civil laws. These are, these are very practical. What do you do if your ox gores your neighbor? Right? You, when you read, you come to things like this in the Old Testament, right? And God is governing the civil reality of how they are to live with one another. Now, Paul says something really important, and I want us to hear it in our, Ameri like our, our modern day Christian ears. He says, now we know that the law is, when you read the Old Testament, I want you to see the grace of God that is dripping in the law that he's giving. 
I want you to see the grace of God in everything he's doing. Praise God for his grace of moral law to govern the people he's called out to himself. Praise God for the ceremonial laws that will ultimately point to the perfect prophet, priest, and king who would come later, Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God for the civil laws that govern, what do, you do? What do I do if my ox takes off after my neighbor? How do I live loving God and loving people that was at the heart of every civil law that he gave? Now, Paul's established the law of God is good. God doesn't make bad things. But then he says, now we know that the law is good if, no, it's always an open book, right? Always an open book. Don't look at me, look at your Bible. If one uses it lawfully, he says, now church at Ephesus, Timothy, as you establish them in the faith, there's a lawful use of this law. There's a right and good use of this law. We all understand this. A good thing used in a bad or wrong way can be a very dangerous thing. Am I right? We live in a house with little kids. Pencil in hand, writing on paper, good use of a good thing. Pencil jammed in ear, bad use of a good thing, right? The good things used in bad ways become dangerous, and you have teachers in the church who are using a good thing from God in a bad way of, 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 of teaching some sort of, of works righteousness, of law-keeping to earn right standing with God. And now Paul's point is this. How is the law used lawfully? What do we need to understand about how the good law of God is used rightly? He says, understanding this. The law is not laid down for the... Now, who's just? Who's righteous? I know, it kind of feels like a trick question, right? You're like, I think the answer is no one. But the Bible does talk about some people who are now just or righteous before God. What? None of us, apart from a just Savior, are just before God. Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, who's come now, and, and uh, uh, Romans chapter 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified, made righteous by, by works keeping, by law keeping, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No human being is just or righteous before God. The only way we become just or righteous before God is by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we have here now, the law is not laid down for the just. The law is no longer used, or the law, the, the, the law can never be used to ultimately make us just before God. That comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. But what does the law accomplish? The law is laid down for, back to verse 9, the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Do you know what the law of God teaches us? That all of us, apart from Jesus, are rebellious lawbreakers of a holy God. The purpose of that list there is not that we read it and go, oh, I know some people like that. 
Yeah, I do too. It's you. <laughs> and guess what? It's me. What Paul does there is beautiful. He's like, Let, let's talk about some things. He goes general to specific. The law is laid down for people who are apart from the, who, who are separated from the one who can make us just. The lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, and on he goes. The whole point of this list is that not one of us has kept the law of God. This short list right here lays all of us low. And if you're sitting there right now going, I don't, I don't know. I might stack up all right there. Never murdered anyone. You now have to go to how Jesus helps us understand the heart of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you've been angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Sexual immorality, I, I think I'm doing all right there. You now have to apply what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've looked lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Well, I mean, I looked, but I didn't linger. Guilty. We're guilty. We're guilty. And now this is really important when we come to a paragraph in the Bible like this. The attitude is not, oh, I know some people like that. And the attitude is not, oh, yeah, this is, this is sin in general about humanity in general. No, what God's word and his love is confronting us with today is this is sin specific and sin particular to me. I'm a lawbreaker against a holy God. And so the lie you've been building throughout the weekend to your parents isn't ultimately a lie, isn't ultimately a lie and sin against your parents. It's a sin against a holy God. The lust that's raging in your life isn't ultimately a sin against your own body or against your husband, your wife. It's sin ultimately against a holy God. The passive-aggressive jab from yesterday that was fueled by this, this simmering heart of anger inside of you was not ultimately a sin against the receiver of the passive-aggressive comment. It was ultimately a sin against a holy God. And until we're confronted with the reality that all of us are lawbreakers against a holy God, our heart will never be ready to receive the good news that Christianity is all about. You're not okay. And neither am I. You're not a pretty good person. And neither am I. We don't come to church so that we can be built up in our own strength to go live a more religious, moral life. Some of you are like, that's exactly why I thought we were here. We come to church to let God's word confront who we are apart from a beautiful savior, draw our heart to that beautiful savior who by the power of his spirit working inside of us fuels a life of worship to the Lord. Those are two very different things. So paragraph one that we're looking at today, one of three, has cut us all out at the knees apart from Jesus and has declared we are all lawbreakers. What's the hope for a lawbreaker? 
What's the hope for a lawbreaker? What's the hope for a lawbreaker against God? Jesus is the hope. And this is exactly where Paul goes next. And what Paul is going to do, look at how he ends this paragraph. He says, and whatever else is contrary to what? Contrary to what? Sound doctrine. And sound doctrine must pre- is in accordance with, with what? In accordance with the, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. He ends the paragraph with the focus on the gospel. If you don't know what that word means, that word means good news. It's good news from God. And now as the next paragraph begins, Paul is going to say, let me tell you the good news for lawbreakers against God. And how he's going to do that is by bearing his own testimony. Do you want to hear what God has done to me, a great lawbreaker? This is where Paul goes next. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's the greatest news in the world. Bar none. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is not Paul just randomly inserting his testimony. This flows directly from the paragraph before in which he is building this case to go apart from the gospel. We are all rebellious violators of the law of God. Now let me tell you how Jesus rescued me out of that. As he bears his testimony, he does something that's really important for us to understand. Every testimony has a former way of life has a, but Jesus Christ saved me, and has a, and here's how Jesus is working in me. Paul says, let me tell you formerly who I was. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul was not just kind of in or out on Jesus. Paul was all out on Jesus. Paul was persecuting the followers of Jesus. Paul was inflicting damage and pain on the church, and he was doing all that out of what he thought was zeal for God. And he says, until Jesus came and saved me, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. I was a lawbreaker. I was guilty before a holy God, but I received, what do you receive? But I received mercy. How merciful is our God? What does it say about our God and his long-suffering mercy that you and I are even still here right now? Really? Mercy is God not giving us the wrath we deserve. He is so merciful with us. But but Paul says, I, I didn't only receive mercy, verse 14, and the grace 
of our Lord, to kind of see this picture, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in who? So I didn't only receive mercy, God didn't only withhold from me what I rightfully deserved, he gave me grace. He gave me what I didn't deserve. He gave me, namely, Jesus Christ. And all faith and love are found in Jesus Christ. And so the amount of times that I've heard, like, man, I'm like, I'm, yeah, like, I'm just... I'm getting closer, man. Like, I just don't have enough faith yet for this Jesus thing. You, you won't have enough faith yet for this Jesus thing. You run to Christ, the holder, the possessor of your faith. Your faith is found literally in Jesus Christ. So you can't muster faith up. You run to Christ. And he says this is faith found in Christ, and it's also love found in Christ. How many of us in here need to deeply understand the love of God in our life? And we look to some ethereal experiences for that. Do you know where the love of God is found? It is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Give us Christ. Give us Christ. Run to Christ. Not just the benefits and the byproducts that Christ gives us. How many times has the gospel presented like, come to Christ and you have so much purpose, man. The, 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 the crown jewel of the gospel is not purpose for life, it's Christ. The crown jewel of the gospel isn't like, oh, it's just kind of like meaningless and then run to Christ. And now I'm saying all of the byproducts will come from that purpose and joy and all that. Those aren't bad things. Those come, but those are not Christ. Those are byproducts from Christ. Am I making any sense? Okay. That wasn't in the notes. <laughs> but the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says the trustworthy saying in which all of our faith hinges on. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, to save sinners. So, now let's combine the two paragraphs. What is the hope? What is the hope for the lawless and disobedient that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners? What is the hope for the ungodly and sinners? It's that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. What's the hope for the unholy and profane? You tell me. It's a, you're like, we can't all say that together. That's too long. It's that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners. How about for those who strike their fathers and mothers? What's their hope? And for murderers? And for the sexually immoral? And for men who practice homosexuality? And for enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine? The hope for us isn't that we like figure out how to get those things right. The hope for us is to run to Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, of whom I'm, I am the foremost. Again, the heart, the spirit of that isn't like, yeah, Paul, you're right. You are like the chief sinner. The heart of that is, yeah, Paul, I'm with you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm the chief sinner. What is being communicated here in the gospel is that your only hope as a lawbreaker against a holy God, is to run to Christ today through faith. The one who came to save sinners. It's the only path to a holy God. 
This moment, in this place right now, all of the teaching of the Bible says this, if you will believe on Jesus Christ, you will be saved from your sin right now. And some of you go like, there's no way, that is too good to be true. This is precisely Paul's point and what he, says ne- what he says next. Of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's saying if he can save me, he can save you. I don't care where you've been, and I don't care what you've done, and I don't care for how long you've been there, and I don't care for how long you've done that. If he can save me, he can save you. And I echo that before you today, if he can save me, he can save you. But what the enemy wants to do today, for some of you who walked into church and you were not Christians, or who, for some of you who walked into church and you walked in thinking you were Christians, but the Holy Spirit's showing you, giving you light in your heart to see, I thought Christianity was just religious rule keeping. I'm seeing it's all about running to Christ. What the enemy wants to do in this moment right now, he wants to erect a wall of shame in front of you, and on that wall of shame is graffitied all of the worst of the worst that you've done. Seasons of your life, certain circumstances of your life, and he wants to keep that graffitied wall right in front of your face, and he wants to torture you with it for the rest of your life. Look at all of the worst of the worst you've done. Yeah, that's, that maybe is what the Bible says, but that doesn't mean, that can't apply to you. That is malarkey. Do you know what Jesus does today? He takes a wrecking ball of grace and love to that wall of shame. And on the other side of that, the wreckage of that wall stands a savior with arms open saying, run to me. Run to Christ. The treasure of the gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ. The hope for sinners is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no righteousness you will attain in your life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Run to Christ. And then Paul explodes into worship at the end of this testimony. In verse 17, he says, to the king, he like gets done testifying. He's like, you know what? And to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then into the next paragraph, he says, now, Timothy, guard this. This. These, these, these teachers of the law have been getting up there. They literally have been trying to lay the law down on this church. I'm coming to you saying, here's the use of the law. It shows us we're lawbreakers. Here's the awesomeness of the gospel. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Here's the righteousness now that he works in our heart to a lifestyle of worship. And he's like, Timothy, guard that. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. I'm in verse 18, that by them you may wage the good warfare. There's a phrase you'll see again and again in the pastoral epistles. Wage the good warfare. Other times you'll see fight this good fight. And then he says holding faith, holding to a right understanding, a right gospel that leads to right doctrine, that leads to, uh, that leads to right living. Hold the faith and a good conscience that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for my sin. And now I work, I I live out a life of righteousness, not to earn salvation, but from the salvation Jesus has given me. Hold the faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, 
I got preaching today that I didn't even give you the second point, and I got to give you the third point. So let me give you the second point, and then I'll give you the third point. The second point is the good news is that Jesus saves lawbreakers by his mercy and grace. That's everything I've just been saying, okay? Now let me give you the third point. Go to the third point. We fight a good fight to keep this good news at the center of the household. So the, the fight that Paul's talking about with Timothy, keep this gospel this good warfare is keeping the gospel at the centerpiece of the household, okay? Wage the good warfare. Fight for the centrality of the gospel at the center of the dining room table in the household of God. Do this by holding to a, a sound faith, believing a right gospel that leads to right doctrine, that leads to right living, and do this out of a clear conscience or a good conscience that Christ has paid the penalty for your sin and you're no longer living a good life to earn your righteousness, but from the righteousness attained in Christ. But sometimes when you want to protect the gospel at the center of the household, it will mean tough love within the household. Any parents who've parented for a while understand there's times for tough love in a household? Can I get an amen on that? And, 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 and Paul's going to give an example here of a time at this church at Ephesus. It's taken tough, restorative love to protect the gospel at the center of the house. He says, uh, holding faith in a good conscience, by rejecting this, verse 19, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Verse 20, among whom are Hamanius and Alexander, whom, I've, whom I have handed over to who? To Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Can we all just agree that's heavy language? Can we all agree that even maybe in our modern minds, you might think like that doesn't sound like loving language. No one wants to say yes to that out loud, right? It's heavy language for sure, but I, I want to show us that what's at, what's at stake here is the gospel at the center of the household. And Paul says there's times within a, a household of God, a church family, where, where some people, because the gospel at the center is being threatened, need to be handed over to Satan. Now, this isn't the only place that Paul uses this language. You have uh, in the church at Corinth, a man in gross sexual sin, unrepentant, continuing in that sin. I, that's really important. Uh, you know, these people have been admonished. They're not repenting. They've been admonished again. This is long. This is slow. This is hard. This is difficult. This is painful. This is through tears. And again and again, they just persist in their sin. And this is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So you have these two instances in, in, in you know, um, extreme cases where the gospel is at stake in the household in which the language Paul's using is deliver them over to Satan. Now, practically, what does that mean? Practically, I believe what that means is that these men uh, who, who many believe were, were maybe even elders in the church at Ephesus, these men in 1 Timothy that are called out by name, They've been cast out of the household of God. They've been excommunicated from the household. Now again, right, in, in our day and age, that sounds so harsh, but you know what's more harsh? Is to not protect the gospel and let it continually be under attack instead of casting out those from our midst who are attacking that gospel. 
And so they've been cast out of the household of God or excommunicated from the household of God. And you think, well, man, is that loving? Is that what Jesus would do? That is what Jesus would do because the entire purpose of that process is, is, is tough, restorative love. The entire purpose of that process, when the Bible says hand them over to Satan, is that basically they are following the way of Satan already. Our hope and prayer is that they would go eat the fruit of Satan, be so miserable in that, and turn back to the household of God, where they will be welcome like the father welcomes them in the story of the prodigal son with open arms because of their restorative repentance. That's the goal. Don't ever forget the goal of it. You're like, that sounds so harsh. No, the goal is tough, restorative love that they would come back. I remember I was a young pastor on a, the staff in Crawfordsville, Indiana. We had an amazing executive pastor. Our executive pastor was the kind of guy who could call you into his office, tell you you were fat and ugly, and you walked out and you're like, I love that guy. I just love that guy. And I remember we were walking through a hard thing with someone in the church, and I remember we're sitting around our, our table in the, the room we were in, we're praying, we're praying, we're pleading with the Lord. And this guy says, Father, I pray, make his life so miserable in his sin, the only place he will have to turn back to is you and to your church. And I remember by this 21-year-old pastor, my eyes, I'm like, can we pray that? Can we pray God would make people's life so miserable in their sin? I pray right now, if you are walk, running headlong, and gospel amnesia sin that God would make your life so miserable in your sin that you would turn back to the loving arms of Jesus Christ and the beauty of the household of his church with his gospel at the center of it and find amazing, restorative, redemptive love. And so God's law shows me I'm a great sinner. But there's good news, isn't there? That God's gospel shows me he is a great savior of sinners. Paragraph one today, we are lawbreakers. Paragraph two today, Christ Jesus has come into the world to save lawbreakers. Hallelujah. And there's no other way to get right with a holy God. Run to Christ. And paragraph three today says, church, guard that message with every fiber, spiritual fiber of our being. It can't ever leave the centerpiece of the household. And so church, I can think of no greater way to celebrate this gospel reality than through a baptism today. Are you right? Come on, are you serious? And so Tyson, come on up. Uh, we in this service get to celebrate with Tyson Holt, Pastor Brian and Anna's son here today. We are so excited. Now you need to know this. It, it, some of you come from maybe different traditions. Uh, we believe what the Bible teaches is this. We are saved by grace through faith, period. The way we go public to proclaim that faith is through baptism. And so Tyson is going to declare to you his testimony of when he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, as he is dunked under the water and brought back up, he's declaring before us all, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And Redeemer, you all know how we celebrate proclamations like that. And if you don't know, you're about to find out. So Pastor Brian, why don't you take it away?